Take your Bibles with me this morning and open them to the Gospel of Luke chapter 6. The Gospel of Luke chapter 6. While you're turning there, I would ask you if you would join me in praying. Um, we are in need of laborers for the harvest. We need children, Sunday school teachers, and so uh, if you would join me in praying that God would provide uh, some laborers or, or maybe work it in your heart to join us there, that, that is greatly needed. I want to uh, make sure that we seek those things out. This morning we'll be in Luke chapter 6, verse 1, the first passage in uh, chapter 6 here, and in the last three passages that we've walked through in chapter 5 and today the fourth and fifth passages we've seen the Pharisees rise up against our Lord and primarily specifically we've seen the Pharisees and their man-made religion and their man-made traditions rise up against the Lord they have uh, began to attack and accuse and criticize Jesus based upon their own self-righteousness and their own man-made religion it's the same thing that Jesus says about them in Matthew chapter 15. We've looked at this passage in verse 7. He looks to the Pharisees and says, You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine, teaching as commandments of Scripture, their own traditions. That's what we've learned about the Pharisees. That's what we've seen about the Pharisees in Luke chapter 5 and now chapter 6 and that's what we will continue to see as they rise up against the Lord attack him his ministry and his works and really church this comes down to a battle between what is true and what is false doesn't it and that is primarily important for us today because those lines in our culture are being blurred aren't they the line between what is true and what is error what is uh, right and what is false those, those lines are being mixed together, blurred together, so that you know the, the popular mantra today, don't you? What's true for you is true for you, and what's true for me is true for me. That, that is a false and logically absurd view. Because two opposing views can't both be true. And that's what we come to see here as Jesus interacts with these Pharisees. There's two opposing views here, and only one of them can be true. And what we've learned about the Pharisees is that when you get so uh, far gone and so deep into false religion, what is false, it often blinds you to the point where you cannot see the truth any longer. In fact, that's the tragedy we're going to see in Luke chapter 6 this morning, verses 1 through 11, that these Pharisees have gotten so far off track and they've gotten so far into their traditions and their self-righteousness that they actually cannot realize divine works that are done right in front of their face. They're blinded to the truth of God following down falsehood. And so we see, even in the last passage we looked at, chapter 5, verses 33-39, and we see this morning, in Luke chapter 6, 1 through 11, Jesus is going to expose their self-righteousness, expose the error of their ways. He's going to expose the real truth about God's commandments. He's going to expose his own authority that he possesses to interpret God's commandments over the Pharisees. And in short, we're really going to see that 
What's important in life is what Jesus has to say and not what false religious leaders have to say. In fact, Jesus' statements always supersede anybody else. And that's what we'll pick up here in Luke chapter 6. Look in verse 1 with me. We'll read the passage and then begin to come back and walk through it. Luke chapter 6 verse 1, Luke writes and says, On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them together in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for, lawful for any but the, Pharise, uh, but the priest to eat? And then he also gave it to those who were with him. Verse 5, And Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and he stood there, and Jesus said to them all, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to him, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they, the Pharisees, were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. The first thing that we want to look at in this passage is found in verse 1 and verse 2. It is the controversy that's taking place. Jesus, uh, Luke is setting up the scene here as Jesus interacts with these Pharisees. And the scene is that the disciples and Jesus are going along through some fields and they're plucking grain and they're eating it. Now, this is what the Pharisees have a problem with, but let's clarify some things first. What they're doing when they walk through these grain fields and pluck the grain and eat it is actually perfectly legal. It's prescribed in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 25, that this was allowable for anybody who would walk through the grain fields. They could pluck heads of grain and eat it. They just could not take the sickle and chop down the grain. In fact, it was so common in this time, that farmers would make a hardened path through their grain fields for easier travel. Since walking was the primary way of traveling in this time, uh, and a straight line is the quickest way to travel, farmers would often provide paths through their fields. And they would plant grain along the edge of these paths that was expressly for the purpose of travelers to pluck and eat as they went through. And so we look here and we see the scenario and we see this uh, controversy. These guys are, the disciples are plucking grain and eating it. And we need to understand it's not that the Pharisees are accusing them of theft. Because what they're doing is actually quite common, quite allowable. Now you wouldn't expect somebody to roam out in the middle of a field and start plucking grain. But that grain that was planted along the edge of the field or along the edge of the path was planted for that purpose of plucking and eating. The actual problem that they're accusing Jesus and his disciples of is that they're breaking the Sabbath. Not theft, but Sabbath violation. 
Let's talk about the Sabbath just for a moment. What exactly is the Sabbath? It was the last day of the week. It was something that was instituted by God himself in Exodus chapter 20, prescribed as the fourth commandment in the Ten Commandments as a day that was designated for rest and for worship. That's a primary means, a day of rest, a day of worship instituted by God himself meant to resemble God's rest in creation and the need for humanity to rest. But also, it was meant to be a visual symbol, a constant reminder of the Mosaic Covenant, of the law of God, and as such, it was meant to be a day of worship. Those were the two primary reasons for God instituting the Sabbath. Consequently, from all of those things, it was one of the very few things that so distinctly set Israel apart from the rest of the world. Other nations had their sacred writings, had their sacred festivals, had their sacred idols, and so on and so forth. Israel was the only nation that had a sacred, continuous day. Every week, the Sabbath was to be observed. And it's important for us to note in understanding the Sabbath that it wasn't a sacred item, like those tools or or utensils found in the temple or tabernacle. It was sacred time set apart by God. Six days you're going to work for yourself, you're going to make a living, and the last day you're going to work for me. You're going to rest and you're going to serve me and you're going to worship me. It's a sacred day every week to remind you of the covenant that I've made between me and you. You're my people. Nobody else in the world is going to have a day like you're going to have every week. You are my people, and this day is your special day. Instituted again by God Himself. And so, since it's a one-of-a-kind day in the world for the people of Israel, it's safe to understand that it was the most guarded day and most guarded distinction of the Jewish faith. It was, and as we'll see in a moment, zealously defended and strictly monitored so that it was not profaned or violated. And by this point in time, Luke chapter 6, it had become a symbol of really national pride. This is our day. Then the Pharisees get a hold of it, and they decide to interpret it themselves and lay upon it um, their own regulations in an effort to clarify what God had instituted. And so by this time in Luke chapter 6, it had become a totally overburdened day with added requirements and added rituals and added regulations from the Pharisees. And just a side note, all self-righteousness wants to add to God's Word, doesn't it? All self-righteousness wants to impose upon God's decrees things that aren't really there. And that's what the Pharisees have done with the Sabbath. Centuries of their legalism has now prevailed into a rigid and really a backwards view of religion that's also mixed with God's truth, which we've talked about in the last several weeks and we will see again this week that truth mixed with false religion or error is... Just like poison water, isn't it? It may look good, but it's still going to kill you. In fact, we can even say truth mixed with error is no longer truth. 
It's just a distortion of the truth. And that's what these Pharisees had come to do with the Sabbath. They'd taken the truth of God and applied their regulations and their requirements on it until no longer did it reflect or resemble what God had intended for it to be. Actually, the Pharisees had taken and they had applied to it hundreds upon hundreds of interpretations, their interpretations on it. They debated constantly and they discussed constantly what constituted as a violation of the Sabbath. They were fixated on making sure that no one violated the Sabbath to the point that they forgot what the Sabbath actually was. And so, including all of their extra-biblical writings outside of Scripture, what was meant as a day of rest, and what was meant as a day of worship, and what was meant as a day of a reminder, a constant weekly reminder of God's covenant with His people, had now, by this point, become the most oppressive day of the week for the Jewish people. They had done basically what we've seen them do with fasting. Impose their self-made rituals and traditions. And as Jesus said about them in Matthew 15, teaching their rituals and traditions as if they were the actual commands of God. So let's talk about a little bit of some of these rituals that they added to the Sabbath, some of these regulations and requirements. It comes from one of their extra biblical writings, one of their extra books called the Talmud. And it had 24 chapters in it devoted to Sabbath regulations. In fact, one, one author noted that it took one rabbi two and a half years, roughly, to study through one chapter of the Sabbath regulations. It was a complex system of restraints on external behavior. And that's important to note because these regulations that the Pharisees are applying to God's Sabbath law have nothing to do with the heart. They are restraints upon external behavior. And they took what was the fourth commandment, verses 8 through 11 of Exodus 20, and they devoted 24 chapters in their own book to what it meant to violate the Sabbath law. I want to read to you some of the absurd regulations they put upon the Sabbath. It was illegal for a person to travel more than 3,000 feet from their home. However, if you placed food at the 3,000 foot point before the Sabbath, that would constitute as a home since there was food there and you could travel another 3,000 feet. Along those same lines, if you placed a piece of wood or a rope across a narrow street or an alley, that constituted as a threshold and might be someone's front door and then again 3,000 feet could be counted from it. They also had many regulations about carrying certain items. For instance, if something was picked up in a public place and carried, it could only be set down in a private place. And vice versa, if it was picked up in a private place, it could only be set down in a public place. If an object were to be tossed into the air, it could be caught with the same hand, but if it was caught with the other hand, it would be a violation of the Sabbath. If a person reached out and picked up food when the Sabbath began, that food had to be dropped because if they brought that food back with their arm, it would be carrying a burden or carrying a load in a violation of the Sabbath. It was forbidden for any person to carry anything heavier than one dried fig 
However, if you had something that weighed half of a dried fig, you could carry it twice. Then for specific jobs, a tailor could not carry his needle, a scribe could not carry his pen, a student could not carry any books. You were allowed to carry ink in a jar with you, but only enough ink to write two letters of the alphabet, no more. You could not write a note or a letter to anyone. Your clothes could not be examined or shaken out before you put them on because an insect might be killed in the process and that would be deemed as work. No fire could be put out or lit. Cold water could be poured into warm water, but warm water couldn't be poured into cold water. An egg could not be cooked, even if you dropped it in the hot sand in the summer. Nothing could be sold or bought. Taking a bath on the Sabbath was forbidden because your water may splash over and actually wash the floor. Moving a chair was not allowed because it might make a rut in the dirt floor and that's too much like plowing. Women, you would not be allowed to look in the mirror because you may see a gray hair and be tempted to pluck it. Other things in general, you weren't allowed to sow any grain, and this applies specifically to our passage. You weren't allowed to sow grain, you weren't allowed to plow or reap or bind sheaves. There was no threshing, winnowing, grinding, kneading, baking, shearing, washing, beating, dyeing, or spinning wool. You could not tie or untie a knot. You could not catch, kill, or skin a deer. You couldn't salt any meat. You couldn't prepare the skin of an animal that you had caught, and, and on and on and on and on. Those things may be comical to us, and they are, but the reality is this is what self-made, self-righteous, false religion looks like. A list upon list of works, isn't it? How exhausting is that? How complex is that? And these Pharisees had developed such a list and had developed such a writing that they would look to these people who they're supposed to be pointing to God and they would say, you have to keep all of these regulations on just one day of the week, the Sabbath, or you're sinning against God. And therefore you don't belong to God. The list is a ridiculous list and it could continue on and on and on. Dragging a stick on the ground might be plowing unsaddling your donkey might be working if you found an animal that had fallen in a well you could not get it out because that might be tending your livestock the list is ridiculous so these pharisees who had imposed their regulations and their rituals upon god's commands look at the pharisees and they see them plucking grain which they would have associated with harvesting rolling the grain in their hand which they would have regarded as sifting pulling the husk off the grain so that they could eat it, which they would have regarded as winnowing, and they would have said, all of these acts are sins against God. They're violations of the Sabbath. That's how strict and ritualistic they were about their traditions. In short, church, they, they had foolishly looked to secondary things as if they were first things. And they had looked at the first things as if they were secondary things. This is the error of false religion. Of self-righteousness. Of hypocrisy. They had a very 
very backwards view of what God actually desired for their Sabbath day, for their whole Jewish faith. That's what Jesus is going to be getting at in the rest of these, these two passages. Because these Pharisees, they are the people who we read about and we see they can neglect justice, they can ignore the need of mercy, they can neglect the care of the needy, but they would not neglect one of the violations of their traditions. That's never what God had intended. Totally backwards from the desire and heart of God. And yet that's how they viewed their Sabbath, their imposed regulations. That if you broke them, that was of the utmost disrespect and violation of the law of God. In fact, church, if you look into John chapter 5, you'll learn that's the very reason, one of the very reasons they want to kill Jesus. He heals a man in John chapter 5 on the Sabbath. They question why he does it. Verse 17, Jesus says to them, My father is working until now and I am working. John 18 says, This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Two reasons they wanted to kill Jesus. He made himself equal with God and he broke their Sabbath. How backwards of a view does false religion impose upon the heart of humanity that you're so blinded that you want to kill the very one who instituted the Sabbath because he's breaking your traditions? How, how cautious must we be, church, that we don't try to impose our traditions upon people as if they are the commands of God? How cautious must we be that we don't try to evangelize the world to conform to our likeness. We evangelize the world with the gospel to conform to the likeness of Christ. But false religion is blinding to the point that they would even look at Jesus, hear all that He's taught, as we'll see, see all that He's done, and still want to seem dead. Because he went against their traditions. That's the controversy. That's verses 1 and 2. That's, that's the issue at hand. Not that they're stealing grain. Not necessarily that they're eating. But that they're eating on the Sabbath against what the Pharisees had prescribed. Against their own requirements. Verses 3, 4, and 5. We find the correction that comes from Jesus. The correction and even the confession that comes from Christ. He gives these Pharisees. Two answers, and in a side note, he gives them two answers in defense of his disciples. How pleasant of a thought is it that we have a Lord who defends us against false accusation? Here Jesus defends his disciples with two answers that will totally explode the belief system of the Pharisees. Verse 3, Jesus answers these guys and says, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And then he also gave it to those who were with him. So his first answer is a narrative that the Pharisees most certainly would have known because he appeals to Israel's most popular, prominent king, King David. And it's a story in 1 Samuel chapter 21, verse 1 through 6, where David is fleeing from Saul he comes to the house of God, the tabernacle, in a small place called Nob, and he's in need of food. Obviously, the tabernacle, the temple, it's not a bakery, but the priest 
decides to give him and the men with him the bread of the presence, which is consecrated bread that was laid on the altar. This bread was only permissible to be eaten by the priest and only after it had been replaced with fresh bread at the end of the Sabbath. And yet, David is permitted to eat it because he's in need of it. This is an interesting uh, rebuke that Jesus shares with these guys. Because his point is this, mercy, compassion, and human need are found to be more important than even some of the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament, certainly so much more important than the man-made ceremonial laws of the Pharisees. If David can eat the consecrated bread in the tabernacle and God approve of that, how much more can my disciples pluck the grain which is legally uh, legal for them to do and do it on the Sabbath? Your, your regulations, your traditions, your self-righteousness means nothing to me. That's what Jesus is getting at here. And as we've read through the Old Testament and studied God's law, we know that the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament of the old law, they were never intended to prevent what was necessary for human life. God would never say, it's okay to let somebody die so that you don't violate the Sabbath. That's backwards thinking. On top of that, how startling of an image must it be for these Pharisees to hear that if a human priest can declare it permissible for David to eat the consecrated bread, how much more could I allow my disciples to eat some grain as we walk through the field? But these Pharisees had done what they did with fasting in Luke chapter 5. They placed rigid legalistic regulations on the people that did nothing but burden them down. They actually cared more for their legalistic traditions than they did for the people of God. How many... How many churches are like that? How many of us are like that and prone to that in our hearts? We care more about how we've always done things than about the people around us. The beliefs of these Pharisees are totally backwards to how God views humanity, how God intended His law and commands to be followed. God does care more about the person than He does about their legalistic rituals that they perform. I mean, don't get me wrong, God does want us to follow His law. God does want us to follow His Word. God does want us to live holy lives according to His Word. But God never wants us to elevate our traditions to the status and value of Scripture and then impose them upon the world. I think it's a sad, sad picture here. Of how the Pharisees can totally disregard people for the sake of their own status. But I think that is always the case of self-righteousness and pride, isn't it? And that's what our hearts are prone to do. The moment we stop caring about the souls of humanity and care more about their submission to our customs is the moment we become like the Pharisees. And the enemy would have that be true of us. He would have us be backwards in our beliefs, try to conform the world to our standards instead of the gospel. The second answer Jesus gives in this passage is a, a much more powerful answer. It's, 
an answer of status. It's an answer of authority. Jesus identifies in verse 5 that He is the Son of Man who is the Lord of the Sabbath. This is a striking and a very shocking answer for the Pharisees. When we remember the Sabbath, we can understand why it's so shocking and so provocative to them. We remember the Sabbath is that signature difference of Israel and the rest of the world. It's what sets them apart from the other nations and the other religions. And Jesus is now claiming in verse 5 to rule over that sacred day that sets them apart. You take such pride in the Sabbath. You take such pride in this, this time that God has instituted that sets you apart from the rest of the world. Which, by the way, I'm the Lord over it. And I rule over it. I'm so much greater than the Sabbath. On top of that, we remember the Sabbath, and these Pharisees would have known the Sabbath was instituted by God Himself. It's the fourth commandment in the Ten Commandments. And now Jesus is claiming lordship and rule over something instituted by God. Again, like in John 5, He's making Himself equal with God. He's claiming to have the same prerogative as God over something like the Sabbath. We can take it even further when we remember that the Sabbath is that visual constant reminder of God's covenant through Moses to His people. And in that light, Jesus says, I'm even the Lord over the whole covenant of God. I rule over the whole Mosaic law, the whole Mosaic covenant. This Sabbath day that is so encompassing to you, so encompasses your Jewish religion, I'm the Lord over it. This statement is nothing short of a statement of divinity. A statement of power. It's a statement that means that Jesus is the one who interprets what's right and wrong for the Sabbath day. Not the Pharisees. Jesus decides what is profaning the Sabbath and what upholds the Sabbath. Jesus determines what it is and what it isn't, what it means to keep it, what it means to violate it. He is the perfect and sole interpreter of God's law, of God's will, and of God's word. He has divine sonship in Him alone. These Pharisees think they are the sole interpreters, and that's true with all false leaders. They always think that. Jesus responds with such a statement of, absolute authority over everything that they hold dear. <laughs> and I just want to add that that's even the case today with our Christian faith, isn't it? Jesus, just like He was Lord of the Sabbath, is head of the church. And He determines what the church is, what the church isn't, who makes up the church, what the church is to do what worship looks like. He determines our resources, our outreach, our stewardship. He determines what the members do, who has what spiritual gift, what appropriate leadership is. Everything about the church comes through the filter of Christ and not us. He is the Lord of the church just as He is the Lord of the Sabbath. The last thing I want to get to this morning is verses 6-11. through 11. And that is the confirmation. We pick up here on another Sabbath day. We're not told what exact Sabbath day that is. If it's the immediately following Sabbath day or if it's 
further in the future, and, and I don't think it necessarily matters because all three gospel writers of the Synoptic Gospels who include this passage follow it with the same passage found in verses 6 through 11, and that's because they are communicating one singular point in coupling these two passages together. Jesus claims lordship over the Sabbath, and here's the miracle on the Sabbath to prove it. Here's the confirmation that you need. So we pick up in verse 6. He enters the synagogue. He's teaching. There's a man there whose right hand is withered. He's, he's got some disease. Verse 7. The scribes and the Pharisees are watching him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. Here's something very interesting to learn about uh, the false religion and false thinking, backwards thinking of the Pharisees. Because they don't try to prevent Jesus from healing and breaking their law. They actually want him to heal and break their law. That tells us something about them. They don't care about their law as much as they care about their authority and their power. The second thing noticeable in that verse is that they don't deny that Jesus can heal. In fact, they know quite well Jesus can heal. He possesses the power to heal, but they've totally missed out on what his miracles are meant to do, which confirm his authority in, in divine sonship. But they want him to heal. They know he can heal, but it's not for the right motives. Again, they don't care about those who are sick. They care about themselves. The common trait in all false religious leaders. So they want Jesus to perform a good and healthy sign that would violate their traditions that they might have something to say against him. Jesus knows this. Verse 8, he knew their thoughts. He said to the man with the withered here, hand come and stand here i think that is so telling about our lord he calls this guy up in front of everybody he knows the pharisees want him to heal him so that they can accuse him and he's not ashamed to heal him on the sabbath in fact i'm going to do it in front of everybody present come up here and stand by me and then he poses this question this conundrum to the pharisees and the people listening that totally catches them in the crosshairs he says to them in verse 9 i ask you is it lawful on the sabbath to do good or to do harm to save life or to destroy it which takes precedent doing good and preserving life or letting life dwindle away to keep your traditions that's the real question and we know from the passage before David was an example that life matters more than keeping your man-made traditions, your man-made rituals. He knows exactly where he's got the Pharisees, and yet they can't give an answer. Verse 10, they look around, or he looks around at them all. Nobody says a thing, and he said to the man with the withered hand, stretch out your hand, and he did so, and his hand was restored immediately. The, the shock value of this passage is not so much that Jesus healed. Because we've seen him do that before already. He shows such compassion to those who are in need. And he shows such power and authority over all things. Including a sick human body to heal him. The, the shock value for me comes in verse 11. I think this is the greatest tragedy. The Pharisees, because of this, are filled with fury. And discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. How tragic of a thought is it that they can hear Jesus say, actually see and hear Jesus expose their false teaching with a story about David, 
then hear Jesus say, I am the, the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm interpreting it correctly. Then see that confirmed through Jesus performing a miracle on the Sabbath and still come to the end of it and want to kill him. How can they witness? How can they hear? How can they be exposed to this work of Christ and still be so blinded to the fact that they want to destroy a man who has done good on the Sabbath, who had healed just on the Sabbath? Jesus defends his disciples from eating in the first passage. And then he's the one found doing found doing the act in the second passage. And neither neither one of those events seemed to jar the Pharisees. Neither, neither one of them seemed to grab a hold of their hearts. Neither one of them seemed to jolt them into reality. Instead of hearing such divine teaching and a divine proclamation Instead of seeing a divine miracle, which is divine confirmation that Jesus does in fact possess authority over the Sabbath. Instead of seeing all that, they only see fury. And from this point in Luke's gospel, they start discussing, what can we do to him? How can we get rid of him? How can we stop his teaching? How can we prevent his popularity and fame from increasing how can we kill him how tragic of a thought is it church that false religion can blind you to the point that you don't even see the miracle right in front of you that's important for us to know church because that is still the scheme of of the devil in the world you and I engage people on a daily basis who are blinded by the false religion of self, by the false religion of secularism, by whatever you want to plug in the blank. And they're blinded to seeing the miracle of the forgiveness of Christ right in front of them. They need someone to help open their eyes. They need someone to pray for them. They need someone to share for them, share with them. They need someone to implore God on their behalf that He would open the eyes of their hearts. Because this is the, the path of the unbeliever subject to the chains of the enemy. You miss out on Christ. They totally miss out on Jesus. I, I pray that, that we wouldn't be the Pharisees in verse 11. And I pray that we wouldn't be the Pharisees in verse 2. So concerned with how we do things and imposing our strict regulations on people that have no place in the faith that comes with walking with God. I, I pray that we're not so entrenched in how we've always done things that we could see God move right in front of us and yet, verse 11, be filled with fury because it's not how we've always done things. I pray that we are people sensitive to the Spirit's leading Rooted in Scripture, knowing the heart of God and willing to follow Him and Him alone. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the Lord of the church. He is the only Lord that matters. Let us be warned not to add our traditions upon the things of God. 
let us be warned not to neglect the souls of humanity around us for the sake of our religious experiences or religious expectations. Let us not become so blinded by false belief that we can see Christ perform a work of saving souls right in front of us and yet be blinded with fury because it's not how we think it should have been done. That's the problem with false religion. That's the problem with these Pharisees. And Jesus is going to consistently and constantly expose their error of thinking. God cares, and how wonderful of a thought, God cares for humanity. Not our self-made religion. And as we who are Christians born again in the image of God, we should reflect the heart and character of God with the same desires for the lost humanity around us over our traditions. So I pray and I hope that you have someone in your heart, someone in your life that you know that you can take the message of the gospel to, not the message of self to. And I hope and pray that if any of us have found to be following in our traditions over and against the will of God, we would repent of those things and ask God to help us by His Spirit and His grace follow Him and Him alone and His Word alone. Church, that is the only thing that matters. Father, I do thank You for Your Word again in that in Your Word we can see what is right to believe and follow and what is wrong to believe and follow. and We can see what it means to reflect Your heart God, I know my own heart and I know sometimes I get caught up in the way that I want to do things. I totally neglect the people around me. But proclaiming your gospel to them. I pray, Lord, that we wouldn't be blinded by our own man-made ideas or programs or institutions. We would be people who know your word and faithfully follow you. Striving to make your kingdom known, not our own. Thankful, O God, that you have reached out and opened our eyes to the truth. That we can be warned, protected, guided down the right path of following you faithfully. I thank you that you don't overburden us like the Pharisees did. You don't overburden us with trying to earn grace through works. Thank you that your yoke is easy and your burden is light. Your yoke is one of forgiveness, not of earning salvation. I'm thankful that you so ruthlessly defended that truth. I pray that we would as well. Let this passage... Marinate upon our hearts this week, O oh God, that we would meditate upon it and know how you would have it applied to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.